Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the digital workspace inner workings. So welcome, Mark, to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? So thanks, Ryan. Well, um, thanks for inviting me first off. I mean, I know it's taken us quite a while to actually make this happen. I think it's actually years. <laughs> yeah, shh, don't, didn't want to say that. Cause I, you're right. I, I can certainly recollect it a year or two. And so much has changed since then. So maybe it's made it even more interesting now from the early days when you started it. But anyway, um, my name is Mark McGregor. Um, for those that don't know me, I've been in and around the uh, computer space now for about 45 years um, in a number of different capacities, whether that be uh, in project management, computer operations, recruitment, running software businesses, product marketing, product management. But more importantly to where we're talking about today, for the last 20 years, has all been around process management, process automation in its various guises. So whether we call it BPM, whether we look at BPMS, whether we look at its change management. And of course, all of those things feed into that key topic of digital transformation. Great. And we've done, I mean, we've known each other probably since 2010, I think, because that's when I joined Global 360, which was a BPM company. Yeah. A lot has, a lot has changed. Uh, and we'll talk about it in a sec, but maybe just give us a, a hint to what you think the digital workspace means to you, and then we'll go into to that stuff. Yeah, I mean, for me, and, and, and I think, you know, we probably share similar frustrations, it really means fundamentally rethinking the way that we work yeah. and then to take advantage of new digital technologies and, and, and enabling us to do things that we never thought possible. You know, I yeah. get really frustrated that, and I'm sure you've seen it with many of the podcasts and a lot of the stuff you've done. These So often I hear people talking about digital transformation and they're actually not. They're just digitizing. They're doing what they always did. Yeah. But using automation. Well, that's not that's not a digital transformation. I mean, fundamentally, I guess it's really about saying it's about business transformation enabled by digital. And then when we look at the workplace, there's just so much that it can mean to all of us. Yeah, I, I must admit, I think digitalization is part of digital transformation. I don't think it, I don't think it's the same level or whatever. I think it's just a small piece. And I think a lot of the stuff that we did, you know, as I said, back in the Global 360 days, where value was a big thing around building a product. You know, you when you're looking at business process automation, you weren't caring about the necessarily the leave or the expense process. You were caring about the those core processes that ran the business, you know, contract the billing or or something like that, where if you made it more efficient, you save the business either more money or, you know, gave more efficiency and more effectiveness. I mean, you know, you can avoid risk as well. I mean, that's that's pretty much why we started Value is to do all these things. Yeah, well, but if you look at those value gigs that you guys were doing and, you know, the value consulting stuff, was, I think was a really great way of looking at it. Yeah. It wasn't about taking your existing process and then using the fancy automation. It was about saying, hey, no, you're right. We, we don't just want to automate the expense process. 
Yeah. It's the value, whether it's the client onboarding, whether it's underwriting, whether it's loan origination, is about saying, okay, well, now we're going to look at this. Let's rethink what the process should look like. So if you think about those really successful customers, they didn't just ignore the process analysis. And if mm. you think about it, it was one of the things that made you guys a little different around that value consulting, which isn't, hey, you just give us your existing stuff. We're going to show you how to go automate that. And, you know, I can say it now because they don't exist. But, you know, if you think about it, uh, when OpenText bought both, that was part of the the mismatch and the arguments between the global people and the Metastorm people, because the Metastorm people was never mind that analysis crap. Let's just give us what it is and we'll automate it. And away you go, you're all going to be happy. Whereas the global 360 value approach was saying, well, hang on, let's take a step back. Mm. So if you think about it, it was more about digital transformation and less about digitization, even then. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, and and I, I remember those clashes. Uh, I mean, it was ironic in the sense that, uh, you know, I knew friends at Metastorm and we got merged together and, and, and although we had those conversations in Baltimore, um, it, you know, the, the thing was, you know, those those low value processes, the expense claim process, they were they were they were no more valuable automated than they were doing manually, if you think about it, because it was really the same thing, it was just in a different place. But having those bigger discussions with the customer to change things and then having a number associated to and I remember doing this analysis with one of the airlines back in South Africa where the cost of an invoice went from costing like tens of thousands of dollars to costing like $2 because we changed the whole process. And we used, you know, OCR and, and business rules and, and all that stuff to fire this thing through. And then I remember doing the same thing with, it, with with one of the motor manufacturers. And we actually discussed with the CFO and renegotiating his contracts with his suppliers based on the common, the repeating process he was getting or repeating invoices to say, well, go tell them you'll pay them the same amount every month. And at the end of six months, you'll just do a true up but then they must keep delivering the stuff otherwise the, the factory stops. And if the factory stops, it's a half a million dollars to restart it. And they had like three in a month or something. So that alone just solved the solution if they ever did it. Well, that's a, you know, that's a great example. I mean, there's the, um, and we know it's a mythical story, um, but the theory is of the Ford guys, when the Ford had the tie with Mazda, the purchasing guys going and saying, well, you know, how do you do it? And, wow, how do you get it down from 50 to 5? And they work through, see what Mazda are doing. They get it from 50 people down to 5 people. And then one day they're talking with the Toyota guys, and the Toyota guys say, what do you mean? We don't have anyone in purchasing. They say, well, how do you mean? He said, well, we know when a car rolls off the assembly line, there are four wheels. Therefore, we have to pay for four wheels. We just do it. We don't need all this invoicing and purchasing stuff. Yes, we have a contract negotiation, but it's your, to exactly to your point, as a supplier, it's your job to make sure there's a sufficient number of wheels at the yeah. front end. And then every time a car rolls off the back, we're going to pay you because we don't need the rest of the stuff. We already know. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, that, and that's, a, I mean that's an awesome way to think about it because we, we almost create admin sometimes because we don't actually rethink the perspective or change the perspective on it. So I really like that as an example. So, so what kind of work are you doing now? Then? I mean, what, what's the kind of consulting that you would be doing with a customer? Yeah, well, I've been doing a, a mixed bunch. I mean, you know, most of my stuff over the last few years, a little like we were doing the 360, has really been working with other vendors. Um, so either helping them in terms of the product marketing, and 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 that touches into where you're going, which is moving more into that persona. Uh, I still find that there are way too many vendors 
selling features and all the bits and pieces and actually not understanding what someone's doing with it. Um, and actually, and even where, and particularly in an agile world, you know, you get people that say, oh, yeah, well, we use personas and, um, you know, we're using journeys. So we've got all that nailed. So we don't need anything. And then you dig in and you say, great, but you're in product development. So you're developing a user persona. Yeah. You're developing a user journey. This is not the buyer journey that marketing need to do. So, yeah, it's great that a user in a call center loves your product. Bad news is they don't have the budget or the authority to go buying your product. How much do you understand about the pain of the guy that runs or girl that runs the call center? What's their pain points? And they go, uh, yeah, but that's too difficult. What we do know is that, you know, Fred and Frieda, they just love using our stuff. To, you, know, you, you never get to speak to Fred and Frieda if Joe and Josephine aren't saying, wow, I have a productivity problem in my call center or I have a call rate dropout or, or, or just keep going. if you don't identify the business problem. I mean, it's exactly to where, you know, we come back to that value thing. So I, I've been spending a lot of time. I mean, you know, recently I've been working with people like Apramore. I've been working with people like um, iGraphics. Um, I, I did some work with Lean IX in the enterprise architecture space. And of course, you know, anyone listening, the thing that I'm most associated with and most proud to be associated with is the work that I did with, you know, three and a half years working with Gero Decker at Signavio and uh, helping them get to that point where they they got their exit i mean i i didn't get rich on it i had a very good contract and they they looked after me nicely but i yeah. wasn't there for the exit but you know i i very proud of the fact that garrow and mark hollenstein credit a lot of the story that i created for them is enabling them to get the growth that got there yeah. but i also earlier this year did some work with um a company called semex um so they're looking at putting in a lot of process management. So it was kind of interesting working with them as an end user because I don't do a lot of end user consulting. So that was kind of refreshing. Um, so yeah, so lots of good fun. Good, good. And what would be your approach? I mean, how would you come in? I mean, because I, I have that, that sort of same thing. Sometimes we talk to people about personas and, and they, it, it becomes almost um, too blurry um, between the different perspectives of the persona, if you like. Yeah. Um, I mean, how would you, educate somebody into what they need to to do yeah and i think this can to your point this can work for someone looking at solving a problem internally as well as externally you know if you if you think about it when we were you know doing the stuff with um at global we we're doing the seminars you know i talked about the fact that in the a lot of these centers of excellence approaches whether it's bpms or process mining anything, their accidents looking for somewhere to happen there's a bunch of technologists in love with their solution and they're rushing around the business saying, well, you could, you should. Okay, well, we don't do what we could and should. We do what we need and must. Um, so there's a bit of a flip. So even whether you're working internally or looking from a vendor point of view, I come back at the same. What problem do you solve? Yeah. Who has that problem? Why is it a problem to them? How do they currently get around it? Because we all forget the fact that these are operating businesses. So they've already found a workaround. It might yeah. be kludgy, it might be expensive, but they've already got a workaround. So we're actually not going into green space. So, okay, how's that? And why is, why is this or yours a better solution to that problem? 
if we can't answer those questions, whether we're trying to promote our ideas internally or whether we're a vendor trying to sell product, then we don't have the story. Uh, and, you know, we went through it. I went through it a lot when working at Gartner and working as an analyst. And it's so frustrating that so often people can't expose. Yeah, well, never mind that. Let me tell you about. It's like, no, 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 no. If you aren't clear on what problem you're solving for who, and then usually what you get, and process mining is, is, a, is a bit of a good example in this instance. Well, we can solve this or this or this or mm. this. Okay, great. So you can solve everybody's problems. Who's the everybody that's going to buy? Well, yeah, that's what. Right. So drill into a specific. Yeah. Specifically, why? You're 100% right. I mean, I had this conversation. So we built a, a SaaS platform, and, and I was having this conversation with an old colleague of mine. And I was saying, you know, we can, I know your business, so I know we could solve this, 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 and this. And that's not to say we're in anything platform. I just know that we can solve these things for you. But like, let's, what's the first thing that you want to solve? And he, and he said, yeah, well, we only need to solve this thing, what it was, but I'd like to be able to do those other things. So it was, it was, it was you know, fortunately I had that conversation in the right way, but I had a, a conversation the week before that where I was in that everyone Thing. We can do a lot of stuff, we can do all the stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy that I was talking to said, no, 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 you need to do exactly what you said. You need to be so specific to the point that it's almost a user of one that you're solving it for. Because a user of one is the, it's an emotional thing, and then it'll filter down. So if you're going to do it for the CIO or the CTO or the CEO, whatever it is, solve it for them, and then it'll go into the organization. Um, yeah, and it could be up as well. But Yeah, but it, I think that, you know, touching on that is also, it gets scary you know, process mining, I'm just going to stay with that one because it's the easiest one. Yeah. Is that when we've done the what problem and who's got it, what we potentially realize is that it's a $100,000 problem. And we now say, ah, and we're trying to sell a million-dollar product. Ah, could this be why we're not being overly successful? Because mm. <clears throat> too often what we see is that actually we're using sledgehammers to crack nuts. We've got these really neatly packaged, well-identified, really clear problems but they don't justify the cost of the solution. So then you have to flip it the other way and say, right, you know, I mean, I I often joke, whether it's process mining, enterprise architecture, process management, that people say, oh, well, you know, it's hard to sell 100,000, 150,000, whatever. I say, you know what? It's really easy. I guarantee that your boss will go for it. So no, no, there's no budget. There's no, I said, no, you're approaching it wrong. You know, if you want a million a year, whether it's a SaaS subscription or for capital, all you've got to do is to show how you're going to save or make 10 million. Yeah. If you can do the business case for that, there isn't a CEO and CFO in the land that are not going to be willing to invest. <clears throat> the problem comes when you want them to invest that half a million or a million for an indeterminate mm -hmm. return. Now I'm looking at saying, oh, well, I'm really not sure. I mean, in the enterprise architecture space, when I was at Gartner, you'd frequently get a call that would say, Mark, we're looking at products, but we've looked at everything in the magic quadrant and they're all too expensive. Who else do you recommend? Because my boss is only going to is only uh, going to invest you know, 20,000, shall we say, 20,000. And say, no, 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 they're not investing. They're saying, I don't know what the value of this product is. I don't know what you're going to give me, but I like you, Ryan. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to gamble. Yeah. 20,000. So let's not confuse the investing with the gambling because we're yep. getting to the point. I don't know what you're going to give me back. So, okay, I'll risk. This is what I'm willing to risk. 
And then we come down to very small numbers. And as you well know, more often than not, we don't get a decent return. So the cycle goes around, says, well, we tried it. It didn't work. Well, you didn't try the right product to solve the right problem. You basically set yourselves up for failure, not for success. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's funny because, I mean, I don't know if you know what my product does, but my product is exactly that. It's the, it's the calculation of the value. Why would you do this thing? And it's not just, I mean, when I first designed it, it was a big calculator. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I say that affectionately, um, but I actually realized that it needed the workflow as well. The, the before and the after, the, the checkpoints, the benchmarking, all those things. And there's, there's pieces, there's more to it, but, but it basically is, it is that thing. Why, why would you do this thing? Like, why is it important? And, and then we do that through, through a value. So is it monetary or a risk or, or a, a cost, uh, a, a time or productivity uh, feature to it? And then when you're doing the actual initiative, we're measuring it all the time against what you budgeted to actual your actual business case. And I liked your one, 1 million to 10 million ratio. I'd actually had it as, as three to one. Um, and I think as long as you've got a, a multiple, I think it's important. that's the important piece. Well, I mean, I think the old finger in the air number was six or seven to one is the okay. traditional CF, CFO ratio that he might expect. Um, okay. And I, I just figured this, well, okay, well, you know, if you use a 10 to one, then you know that you've got something that's going to be pretty compelling. I mean, I yeah. think the crazy thing for me is, and I confess, I should should have looked at the big calculator but you know it's also a great a great example of where people get so myopic so um and you, you know you're bound to have had the conversations but we should be having this conversation and me saying yeah and it's fantastic ryan that so many vendors recognize that this is a vendor problem not just an end user project program realization value problem actually they they're struggling to build the roi for well, selling their product, gee, why aren't you know? Yes, it's great news that you know six or seven significant vendors have all decided to OEM and badge engineer your product, Ryan. So that's fantastic that they've all woken up to the fact that that they're rather than focusing on adding more features a la Microsoft Office, which the average user doesn't use. You know, we talked about the digital workplace as, as your starting point. And so, yeah. gee, well, the main thing in this digital workplace is we've got a whole bunch of stuff on our machines that we don't use we've got a whole bunch of cloud software that we just don't need um and vendors are still continuing to develop more and more and more as opposed to well actually let's step back and do the provide this calculator which is actually going to show someone how the value is going to be or sorry what the value could be yeah how they're going to realize it yep and then checkpoint I mean, to your point about true ups, and I think, you know, a lot of vendors would be a lot smarter if they could work to true ups. Uh, and indeed, a lot of end users would be better to do, do, do true ups and they would find they spend less money uh, because actually they're not using the stuff as much as they think. Um, but a calculator like that is like, saying, OK, well, we can actually demonstrate that it is worth having X extra licenses or fewer licenses um, yep. to deliver the value. So uh, I guess I'll have to look harder. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely show it to you. And I, and I think the 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 thing that that um, we often and, and we're actually so we talked about the sort of how we talk about it. So when I built the product, it was built for digital transformation programs, you know, initiatives. Um, but then the more I looked at it, and the more I sort of started hearing things in the market and, and all the rest of it, I actually started seeing it more as the pre-sales. Yes. And the the customer success renewal part. 
because what was happening is I was getting involved in a whole lot of things where customers were going to churn and we were following the same methodology that I had put in, in the product to get the customer to see the value and do the renewal. And and that's where the sort of three, the three X, three X plus thing came from, because, you know, for a, whatever figure it was, as long as you were three or four times over, it was, it was good. And we were using very simple parts of the calculator to do that math. And, you know, it was, it was always going to be subjective, um, you know, in the sense that we were using numbers to calculate some stuff, but because they had no numbers before, yeah, it, it gave them something to go, well, oh, okay, so if we do this thing, we, we'll probably see some return that we hadn't actually ever measured before. Well, I think that, yeah, that's an interesting thing in terms of the, um, the curve. So if we think about it that says, you know, whether we look at five, seven, or 10 times X, as the initial acquisition build the business case, get above the noise. And of course, you know, we can say that two or three is enough and it might be, but when you go to the board meeting, there's lots of other things competing and they also might be two or three. So it's not going to squeeze through. Um, but if you know that if you get to that seven to 10, then you're going to be getting someone's attention um, because it's going to be, uh, you know that you're going to be solving the right problem and the visible problem. Now, to your point, particularly in our SaaS world, we know that the selling doesn't stop when the deal's done. Yeah, exactly. Because you're already looking at saying, well, this is a one-year, two-year, three-year contract. I've got to be showing the value. Great. And now yeah. I've got to be continuously proving the value to get the renewal. Now, at that point, maybe that it is enough for it to be dropping down to a two, maybe a three, that says, oh, okay, well, we've already invested, we've skilled up, we've got people that know this product now, and yes, we're still getting a return, therefore we should still renew. Um, so we don't need at that point to be getting the seven to 10, be nice, um, yeah. but we don't need it, um, either as a, a vendor to justify why you should keep investing in me, or as a COE or a, a champion inside the organization to keep getting the budget is an okay. So maybe there's a, a Two speed scenario there, one to get the deal, two to keep the deal. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think yeah, because I can I can almost see it in an inverse in some respects. So so with some technology, you might bring it in, you'll get a high return very quickly. So I think about it like I do a lot of end user compute stuff, and so you, so you'll see a lot of st- a lot of value upfront with stability, just yep. being able to recalls analysis to get rid of bad drivers, um, corrupt software faulting software, all that kind of stuff. So you'll see a, an initial improvement there. And typically what the measure there for a lot of people is tickets. And I hate that as a measure, but it's what everyone uses. And the reason why I hate it is because tickets aren't actually an indicator of a, of a true problem, really. Because in most cases, a user only logs a ticket when they've got time, um, if they log them at all. So it could be seven or eight days too late. Um, and we did this work with IBM you know, 20 years ago to do this analysis with, with Watson. Um, but it is an indicator. The quality of the ticket is actually an indicator. What, are the, what is the information you have inside the ticket that helps you to diagnose the problem? That's a, a much better indicator. So instead of worrying about whether the ticket's going up and down, it's more worrying about whether the ticket was useful or not, um, is, which I think is the metric. But the point I'm trying to make is that in that first maybe two years or three years, you'll have a very high return because you'll sort out your stability, you'll sort out your hardware issues, you'll sort out your software issues. And then it'll sort, of, it'll sort of peter off and you'll start doing automations, which will give you a different kind of return on value. But now that's a more efficiency, effectiveness thing. So you could have your seven, eight, nine, ten up front, and then it'll go down to your two, three over time. And it'll kind of stabilize at that two, three, probably four, ten years, um, depending on what you're doing. But you'd have to keep 
doing new initiatives you know all the upgrades because you have to with yeah. windows you have to always replace it um so you have to replace every three years so you'd see those little blips of going two three up to five then down again and then you know carry on like that so that actually would be an interesting thing to to graph out over time um which we've got the, we have the data so we could probably you know in, in, in a couple of years of people using the product we'll start seeing that yeah improve. i think and i think you know that That'll be fascinating and, you know, just true to the stuff that I know that you do and have done for many years is also for people to understand that it's not a binary and understand the numbers. So let's suppose that we go to a one to one or less than one return. It doesn't mean to say the product's bad. We've actually got to go do root cause analysis. Have we lost the trained people? Are we now using lesser trained people? Yep. Oh, are we using it? Have we stopped looking? Oh, yeah, actually, don't just assume that, oh, well, we're not getting the, the return now, therefore we should ditch it. The question should first be, we're not getting the return. Why? What's changed? Now, yeah. it could be, it could yeah. be you know, in our digital transformation that we've totally transformed that area of the business and it is redundant, in which case, great, save the money. Yeah. Um, it is possible, but it is also possible that you no longer have I know a champion, you no longer have the skills in the COE, someone's forgotten, blah, 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 and it's just drifted and you just need to bring it back into people's awareness. Yeah, no, and, and I think the other thing is that we, you know, there's obviously a lot, a lot of focus on the monetary returns, but sometimes that, that ROI is actually based on a risk thing. You know, what have you mitigated? Now, you know, you could have a situation where the risk to the business is, is, is kind of critical that you could shut the business down, but you don't want to necessarily put that number on the table. So you'll just say it's a critical risk. So you can't really do ROI calculation or ROV calculation, as I prefer to use. But you do put it up there to say this is this is in the business kind of stuff. Um, which then we're not talking about multiples. We're just talking about 100% or zero because you're either going to, you know, avoid it or you're going to be taken out. Uh, and if you think of all these ransomware things where you're not prepared for it, you could shut a business down. I mean, Musk went through it. DHL went through it. Uh, South Africa there was a kind uh, just coming there. They were using pen and paper. You know, they couldn't even, they had took them months to reconcile the pen and paper back to electronic once they went back up. So, you know, these are things that, that are, you know, part of our, our, our method is to yeah. tie to those things. And I'm, and I'm now trying to bring in ESG because I think that's also a factor. I don't know, I'm not quite sure if it's a multiplier or a divider uh, in, the, in the method, but. Well, I mean, again, it's going to depend on the size and shape of the organization. I mean, these days, um, you know, without either condemning them or proing them. If you look at um, some of the investment funds, never mind the fossil companies, but look at the investment funds where people are perceiving that banks are lending and funds are investing, pension funds, et cetera, in what's perceived as non-ethical or non-ESG businesses, it actually has a direct share price impact. That is interesting. I hadn't actually seen that. Um... I'm actually part of a group with a few people that that um, we talk about this a lot, and then they then they're in the positions of being decision makers with with buying hardware and software and all the rest of it, and they are making huge efforts to to find sustainable vendors. Um, but I actually hadn't realised that they actually reached the point of affecting share prices because that that's actually well, I mean, you're looking at activist investors. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So um, you know, in for some organisations, I mean, you know. The, the most obvious one is if you look at the pressure that the activist investors are putting on the pension funds 
mm. uh, around Shell and BP, for example. It could be any other oil company, but you know, just looking here in the UK, a massive pressure um, for the banks to stop providing banking, and it's like, okay, uh, it's a far more complex subject. Yeah. Um, than some people see. Um, in terms of the world is quite as simple as some people see it. Um, but that's not saying is that we can't do things to make make things better, shall we say. So uh, I'm going to sit on the fence on some of that stuff. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be honest and, you know, get myself in trouble when people listen. I'm going to sit on the fence because can we do better? Yes. Can we yep. just jump off the cliff of some of these things? I don't believe so. I don't believe people are looking at the full consequences of some of these actions in a simplistic way. And you know, going back to the earlier part of this conversation, it's one of the reasons that I'm quite happy just doing little bits of piecemeal work because the whole work environment now is I'm, I'm happy that I'm a dinosaur because um, <laughs> I, 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 quite frankly, I struggle with a lot of the, shall we say, um, whether we call them rules, regulations, whether it's ESG, political correctness, et cetera, et cetera. The world, in my opinion, the world has gone mad. No, I think you're right. I think, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, a bit of a tangible example. Tangible example. So South Africa is is uh, undergoing severe power problems, which are mostly due to incompetence of the ANC. Let's, let's not sugarcoat it. But they also have taken these these very stupid decisions to take money from the US and the Europeans to go and build renewable power um when it's going to take years to build the power and they still have to deal with the current problem and the only way to solve the current problem is to build you know coal power stations and refurbish them which is what is happening um but the you know the the, the sort of the interesting thing about it is the europeans and the us have forced african countries to go renewable but they haven't got renewable and the likes of india and china have definitely not gone renewable so are you really ever going to solve the problem if the main polluters or the main producers of all the problems are not changing? No, you just, all you do is making it look good. You're putting, you know, lipstick on a pig. So, I mean, from that point of view, I think the answers are pretty obvious. And, and you know, I think I think there's stuff you can do just as a normal person, but I don't think you can, you can get worried about stuff at the higher levels necessarily because you can't control it personally. You can just influence it with your voting and where you, want it, where you spend your money. So you touched on the South Africa. I mean, you know that I spent a lot of time down there over the years, and uh, you you know, I mean, Escom was one of my clients as well. You know, so we're very familiar with that. And indeed, my late uncle um, actually um, ran, um, or pretty well ran a company down in South Africa that was doing a lot of work on the uh, power stations. On yeah. the main. So he predicted. He predicted a long time before that there were going to be problems and outages because the maintenance was all being cut back. Um, yep. But the, the 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 joke used to be down in South Africa was that you know I, I'm the white guy from Europe that dares to talk about empower, black empowerment in South Africa. It's like you can't go there, Mark. And I said, you can because it's really simple. Smart people don't like working for dumb people. And there are some really smart black people working in some amazing organizations. And this was years ago down there. And quite frankly, they don't like working for the dumb people that have been parachuted in. This has got nothing to do with colour, yep. everything to do with personalities and personality types. So yep. it's it's regardless, it's cronyism yep. that's the problem. Um, oh. The, the colour of the people that are cronies doesn't really matter because if we go back into the 
days of white rule, then there are going to be a bunch of incompetent people in a number of places that were every bit on the take, but their colour was different. Yeah, no, and look, I mean, I always, I always joke about how the, the ANC learned, they learned all the tricks from the Nats, but they didn't see all the under, underworking pieces. So they saw them all living in big houses, but they didn't see the other stuff that actually was happening. So they only know how to steal the money, but not how to make sure that there's always money in the future, which was just bad education, you know, by the by the previous party. Because there should have been like a handover, you know, this is how you do the corruption. This is how you keep the country going. So there's more corruption available, you know, that kind of conversation. But uh, yeah, and, and I think that's the hope. You know, we, we've, we've been back a few times. And I mean, I, I get the sense from the ground up that there's there's a that that color thing is not nearly not nearly as as emphasized as the government wants it to be everyone just gets on with it they don't care and i you know i think that's a good thing i think it'll just take it'll take generations to sort itself out unfortunately for me um i might retire i might retire still back there with my kids uh will probably live here um but it'll it'll sort itself it's still a beautiful country um oh but, uh, yeah i mean you know i love it down there i've got loads of friends as you know about being in joburg cape town yeah. you know i can i can remember the the days of even as things were starting to change down in Cape Town, where everyone hated the Joe Burgers coming down with Joe Berg attitudes, because actually in Cape yeah. Town, people had found ways of just getting along together. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was a pretty great place to be. So, yeah, there's a lot of hope there. Um, but to your point, sadly, and it doesn't care what color the money is coming down until the money filters down to provide opportunity yeah. for those many disenfranchised people um then it's just not gonna not gonna happen no. and that's the sad part is that the country has the wealth to dig itself out yeah no and, and the ANC has just kept the, the poor man poor and uh you know we saw it when we were in Mossel Bay um and load shedding kicked it because the load shedding wasn't all the way through Mossel Bay it was like only just one section and then it started to hit other sections and the thing is that you know if you've got means in South Africa you live a very good life but if you don't have means, it's very tough, and and that's the problem. Is the people on there's, there's the the majority's at that that level, so when you get coal, they can't afford the electricity, the power, the the blankets, all that kind of stuff. And that's you know, the ANC sit there with with all the money, and those are the people that suffer. Anyway, I don't want to get too political because we can't go to the root on that one. But, but we should turn it. We should turn it back around and and, and yeah. let's keep it on track, and because I think it, it is relevant. And say, so the question comes when we look at that digital workplace and that digital transformation. Yep. How will those people that are disenfranchised either benefit from what's going on or be able to utilize those to create new opportunity? I mean, how is, you know, how's that? And, you know, that doesn't matter whether we look at South Africa or whether we can stay here in the UK and look at, you know, some of the poorer states when you've got the, the kids with some degree of means, not rich people, yeah. going to school with their own laptops ipads everything else and now you've got another bunch of kids in certain estates in parts of the country us uk south it doesn't really matter where there is no internet at home there is yeah. no ipads laptops so yeah. are we actually is, is digital actually going to make things worse um so it's yeah it's the have have nots discussion now the interesting thing going thinking about south africa specifically is the uneducated, who were kept uneducated by the government, this government, not the previous one, um, as much at least, is the people today now have access to phones with connectivity generally in most places. And they're learning via distributed things like TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube, etc. So the education is coming 
in an uncontrolled way for for the for the, the governments. Um, you see it here as well. I mean, I, I was in a school here a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, and every kid had a phone. You know, it may not be the most fancy, best one, but it was a smartphone, so they could definitely watch YouTube and they could do all that stuff. Now, where they got the attitude, with any of them, the attitude to learn anything, that's that's obviously debatable. Um, but I think the point is that it's accessible. And then there's a, a friend of mine, Freddie Quirk. He he's involved with the Digital Poverty Alliance, and they're going after all the hardware or, or various things to distribute it to people that don't have that hardware to bring to bring it up the levels. Because he saw it, it was what he was doing, and it really, and it really upset him that. People don't have access to the stuff, therefore the kids don't learn. And if you look at, and there was something I was listening on the radio, the the wealth is not so much about having money; it's having all the means to handle your problems. And you know, medical treatment and technology to do things, all that kind of stuff. And that's that's where the the gap starts: is the people with the means can accelerate, and the people without the means stay at a level because they're always at that level. And that's what we have to solve. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's interesting that, you know, that really drives home that whether it's charities, whether it's people thinking about it, the phone as the vehicle. So, you know, yeah, I'm learning French using Duolingo as an example. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> but um, if you think about that experience, yeah, you've got nothing significant to gain by using it on your laptop. The experience is geared for the mobile device. Yes, hundred percent. So we naturally then come in and say, well, okay, if we want to give people access, whether it's to doctors, whether it's um, low-cost banking, whether it's learning maths, learning languages, then actually it's about making sure, to your point, that it's available, made to, to create a great experience on those types of devices. Mm. almost like the gamification of Duolingo. Yep. Because, you know, maybe someone doesn't want to learn a language, but they like the idea of earning badges and doing whatever, which causes a learning experience when they think they're playing a game. So, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I've got no games loaded or pretty well no games loaded on my phone, but um, there, there are a number of games out there and you think, well, okay, well, maybe games is what people want. So, how do we persuade the game makers to embed be it maths or literacy so that for someone that thinks they're playing a dungeons and dragons shall we say that they're having mm. to type type in properly structured sentences for example i mean a crazy example uh, therefore they are inevitably are learning english or actually you've got to do this calculation in order to get this next weapon or whatever so yeah. they have to be learning they don't want to be learning maths and they don't see themselves as learning maths or basic math skills, but actually it's because they want to play the game, but they can't help. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, it actually falls in the category of serious games. Um, and we did this a couple of years ago, and there's there's actually a lot on the App Store, um, and, and and it's not just for training kids and, and that sort of thing, but there's even companies training their own staff on policies, procedures, safety things, that sort yeah. of thing. That's where we were looking at it from, and and I think it's it's going to come. You know, this generative AI wave we're going through right now where you can generate a lot of code easier you know let's not say it's 100 percent easier but let's say it's 20 30 percent easier because you're generating it i think that'll speed up the availability of more tools or more apps that someone who's got an idea to solve a problem wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to do 
but now because they can generate some code, at least to get to that point of uh, an MVP or or, or a, a demo viable product, would now get some momentum. And also, the, a lot of people are focused on community-based stuff. So if that person can get their demo thing ready and put it to a community and get some people interested and then crowdfund it, maybe you end up with a solution that you wouldn't have had before. Um, and that is, that solution can come from the people feeling the most pain. So that can come from the person that's in that, that the ecosystem that says, you know, there must be a better way um, and gets them going. And you're right, form factor is important. Cool. So, great, Mark. I mean, I, I think it's probably a good part to end there. I think we've talked about a lot of interesting stuff. Do you want people to get in contact with you or do you want to be left alone? No, I'm always happy to hear from people, but I mean, they can easiest ways to reach out to me via LinkedIn. Um, yep. Always interested to see, uh, see, and I'm sure that people have more to say about our comments about our friends and thoughts around South Africa. And I think that, that will certainly so. get a few people talking, but you know, for both of us, I mean, you obviously lived and worked there, um, but you know, that I spent a lot of time down there over the years. It's coming from a place of love and hope, right? I mean, that's exactly. the thing. It's you know everything we've said, both of us, is is nothing about knocking or putting down the people. It's just that frustration that it's such a beautiful and rich country with so much potential wealth to share that we would just love and hope to see it move on to the next stage to being what it could become. Yeah, and 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 you hear that from everyone. I mean, that the potential's there, and that's and that's. You know, it's it just needs to be harnessed. Um, but it's okay. The, the Rugby World Cup's coming up. We'll just see some potential there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that England will see much potential from what I'm seeing these days. But uh... yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I mean, it, it's I think there's still a good enough amount of of players there to to be competitive. I just hope that they get it right on the day. Um, time will tell. The tournament, tournaments are fun. There's no way to predict tournaments. Indeed. Well, listen, Ryan. An absolute pleasure speaking with you, um, as ever. Thank you so much for inviting me. I look forward to uh, seeing some stuff on that value calculator and taking a look. The value uh, work, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Send you some um, YouTube channel. I'll send you the link, and you can you can have a watch, and I'll show you some other stuff on the on the download as well. Yeah, brilliant. Coming. And I'll I'll make sure that um, I put down a link on LinkedIn, both to the podcast, obviously, when you tell me it's up there, and also pointing out that we were talking about the value calculator and that should help drive some more people to have a listen and have a look. Love it. I really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for chatting. No worries. Take care. Bye. Go well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.